right? A little karate kid there for you. No. So, we've talked about this before, and this, in the sermon series, as you see, we're getting really close. This goes through chapter 11, or verse 11 of chapter 4, and you see that the sermon series ends in verse 25 of chapter 4. And so, the only universal hope of salvation for all people. You look back at what we've talked about, we've seen Jesus being son of Abraham. We've seen Jesus being son of David. We've seen him name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. We've seen Jesus being cared for by the Father sovereignly. We've seen, you know, Jesus being taken care of by Joseph because of what God has done for Joseph and through Joseph. And we continue again to see how Jesus fulfills prophetic history. And now, this I feel like is the culmination. This is kind of, like, this is not kind of, it is how Jesus defeats sin, defeats the devil, defeats the tempter, defeats him and is entirely thus condemning sin in the flesh while simultaneously abstaining from sinning in the flesh, which is something that you and I can never, ever, ever do. In fact, even as I was just saying that, thoughts go through your head and they can condemn you very quickly. And it's through sin. And even seeing these, as I've laid these out for you too, they, they, they will make sense, but there's a lot of different nuances in there too. We could quite literally spend days talking about each and every one of these types of sins and going through scripture and seeing all of the characters in scripture, whether they fit into this mold or another mold, because we all sin differently, but we're all sinners. So we all need a savior. All need a savior. Don't forget that. And so this is entirely about victory in Jesus because he does what Adam and Eve could do. He does what Israel could do. He does what you and I can't do. And past, present, future continues to do those things that human beings can't do because of our egocentric nature, our sin that dwells within us. Who can save us from this body? Praise be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us from the slavery of sin and bought us back. So, Let's read the text. The temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, 
the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. I want to break this up just a little more for you in the three points. I want you to see as on the back of your bulletin and in the text, the very first point, it's personal. It's personal. And think about it in a personal type of context. The second point, it's national. Okay? It's a national type of context. A nation. The nation of Israel. And then on the very third point, it is universal. So this grows, if you will. Starts personal, one-on-one, -on -one, goes national, then it goes universal to all of the world. And I also want you to know that temptations in and of themselves involve the twisting of reality. I'm going to help you see some of this because this seems like a very normal text, it seems very cut and dry, but there is a lot of deception in this. Imagine that from the devil. Who knew? We all did. So, but temptations involve the twisting of reality, and then you'll see how Jesus replies to each of these. The antidote is the truth of Scripture. The antidote to all of the lies that surround you in your world is the truth of Scripture. Because temptations come at you every which way. And they don't stop. As long as we're here. And as long as we're sinners. Which we know we are until that day that we're officially called home to be with our Lord. So, this almost is like that Ephesians passage where you stand behind the shield of faith wearing the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and the sandals of the gospel and all the goodness to remind you of those things. This very simply too. Victory in Jesus. Remember the victory in Jesus. Know that those temptations are out there, but know that you too can stand against those temptations. It's possible. I'm not saying you'll do it every time, but the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-way sword. It is your sword for battling the world. In fact, it's called the sword of truth, the spirit of truth in and of itself, especially when we talk about the armor of God. So, knowing that, personal, national, universal, and then knowing also that temptations are twisted realities, and then the antidote is in of itself scripture, let's talk about these ridiculous temptations that we all face on a pretty regular daily basis in our lives. The first temptation comes from that first point, obviously. And I wrote it on the back of your bulletin. Very simply, it's to act independently from God's will. And you look at this and you're like, wait a minute, how does Jesus in this by, by saying, like, not commanding stones to become bread? How is this about an act of independence from God's will? So, a lot of this goes back through history. This, again, Matthew being the Jew that he was and understanding the nation 
of Israel as he did, and understanding the scriptures as he did, is able to maneuver us through the scriptures. Because even though this gospel certainly is you know, universal for everyone to be read, he certainly had a little more of an agenda with the Jewish population. Whereas when we look at like Luke, he was a physician, he was just a fact finder. It wasn't about it being geared toward the Jews. If anything, maybe it was geared more towards the Gentiles because they didn't understand you know, the scriptures, the nation of Israel, God's word. So we tried to do it that way. But Matthew here certainly appealing to the Jewish audience. And so Israel has a rich history. In fact, and if you want to know a lot about Israel's rich history, it's called the Old Testament. Very simply. It's plenty back there. It's not in chronological order. So Kathy and I were talking about this morning, which can be very difficult to understand and frustrating because usually when we read something, it's chronological and it follows a flow and pattern. The Old Testament is not necessarily that way. It is structured and it's rigidly a little different. But every one of Jesus' replies, now this is the first point, the second point, and the third point, they all come from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6 or Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so this very first one that we're talking about and where Jesus comes up with his words, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. So it says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, yet fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This, you may know, you may not know, God spoke the world into creation. Spoke it. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Test it yourself in all of this. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quite literally, the nation of Israel back in the past was living off the word of God <laughs> when it came down to manna on a daily basis. Now, this manna story doesn't go quite as far back as the Genesis story and the Adam and Eve story. You're like, well, how do you make that transition then ultimately from understanding bread to the word of God to man's own fall in and of itself? And remember, this is acting independently of God's will. And I'll tie it all together, especially in this part about Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, deals with the fall, okay? And it deals with Adam and Eve and a serpent. 
And we know a little bit about the story of the serpent. He was wiser than the others. He conned or tempted Eve to question God's faithfulness, to question God's motives. And in fact, I'm going to go back here. So if you want to go to Genesis chapter 3, you can see it for yourself because it's a little hard to believe otherwise. So, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and then here's a kicker, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sort of big leaves together and they gave themselves to the thoughts. So, in this very beginning step, and as you see in the nation of Israel too, to act independently from God's will. Here's what's fascinating about that story. Eve knows right from wrong. Eve knows. She knows in this. The devil's like, did God really say? It's kind of like, I hope that you know it is entirely filled with doubt. And it is entirely caused to make you be filled with doubt. This ties back into what we're doing on a daily basis. Faith. Do you trust the Lord? Do you not trust the Lord? The second point has a lot more to do with that. But to act independently from God's will, God gave them the ability to do everything except for that one thing. This is where it goes right. You had one job. Come on, man. There's one thing that you couldn't do. You had to go do it. But boy, how much does that speak of human nature? If I tell you, or, or, or some of you that have had children, you tell your child you can't do that, what's the first thing they want to do? That. They're like, wait a minute, who are you to tell me I can't do that? That's, again, our human nature. It's very much existing within each and every one of us. And so, here we're Adam and Eve. Eve specifically in this, but Adam certainly not protecting his wife and staying at all in this. But she acted independently from God's will. She knew God's will. Every human being on this planet being created in the image of God has a rough idea of what God's will is. Now, when you get the blessing of the Holy Spirit, you're confirmed the will of God for who knows the will of a person or who knows the mind of a person except the spirit of that person. And so it is also with God 
that no one else would know the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, and now we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, so that we may begin to understand the will of God, even though we're still going to walk left and right and astray periodically, but it's going to keep us on the straight and narrow eventually. And as these situations and circumstances change into our lives and change us through the experiences that we have, those are going to help build faith as well within us and trust for the Lord. And so, bringing this back, all back, what was the Father's will for Jesus in this passage? It's verse 1, very simply, in and of itself. He was led by the Spirit. It's important to know the will of God. Led by the Spirit. Then he went off to be by himself, which is wilderness, not necessarily desert, not necessarily where, just where people aren't. Let's look at it that way. To be tempted by the devil. And so, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, which clearly was the will of God, because Jesus would have an army of food with him, right? Have other people with him too, if God had wanted all of this. So the Father's will for Jesus here was to go off and to be tempted by the devil. Okay, very simple. So if Jesus fed himself in and of this moment, would that have been against the Father's will? It's hard to say, right? But at the same time, he was fasting. And if God had wanted to eat, there would have been a food or he would have not had to fast or whatever else. So the answer to that question is, yes, it would have been against the Father's will if he had eaten at that moment in time. Just like Adam and Eve, it's against the Father's will to eat off that one tree. Now, praise the Lord that Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve failed in that regard. Because the inner temptations of Jesus says he's hungry. Like, a lot of people put Jesus kind of in a box, like he's Superman, he's Hercules, he's God, he's, you know, a multitude of things. But no one gives him the credit for being human, like he was human. Everyone's like, well, but he was still half God, and, you know, because he was half God, he didn't have to suffer, he didn't have to do any of that. No, <laughs> this entire New Testament, or really the Gospels, tells me all about how Jesus suffered, how he lived the human experience, yet without sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. We have one who is able to sympathize with us, one who is tested as we are, yet without sin. It's amazing. Nothing short of amazing. 40 days, man, I can't go four hours sometimes. Right? Let alone 40 minutes. Maybe even four minutes. Just depends where I'm at and what's in front of me. Like, yeah, maybe being out in the desert would, would be okay. Like, well, there's nothing else here to do. But you always want what you can't have. And if you tell me I can't have food, much like when I have to go to the doctor and get one of those fasting blood tests, Ooh, I hate those. 12 hours, no food. You're like, come to the minute. You're like, oh man, all right, well, my test is at 10 a.m. in the morning. 
9.58, I better hurry and eat something. I better hurry up and do it now while I can, right? And so we see this, and, and this is only funny because it's true. It is 100% true. This is our human nature. You, you can deny it till the cows come home, but it's absolute truth because it is our nature. It's how we live. And we do act very independently from God's will. Let's see. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Mm. Oh, okay. Thou shalt, like even the Sermon on the Mount, if you, if you think of someone improperly, you've committed adultery with them. Right? If you hate someone in your head, it's the same as committing murder. It's like, oh man. Do you think there's ever a time, and I know we all do this too, do you think there's ever a time that it's in God's will to lie to other people? Yeah, but it's just a little fabrication. It's, it's, it's a waffle thin fabrication. It's a little white lie. No, the Lord's will would never have you lie. The Lord's will would not have you hate other people. The Lord's will would not. So even right now, you should all be convicted. Like, yeah, I didn't say previous. Man, I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, adulterized, coveted, worshipped, done all of these things. So Jesus did not act independently from God's will. He was led by the Spirit. And that is amazing. So personally, you see the will of the Father and the blessing of the Holy Spirit working together. Okay? Point two, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed nationally. Temptation number two. This is probably one of my favorites. One that we abuse the bejeebers out of. The bejeebers, yes, I said bejeebers. <laughs> Temptation number two. Does God really care about you? Does God really care about you? Well, if he does, then he should blah, blah, blah. This is nothing more than an act of unbelief disguised as belief. To force God to act on our behalf to prove that he is ultimately for us. So, I know that we've all done this, but I want you to see in the passage here that these temptations from the devil, the lies from the devil, are certainly where we get a lot of this kind of desire to prove it. So the devil is quoting Psalm 91, which is entitled about the Lord is my refuge and my strength. Pretty common theme for ancient Israel. A lot of the Psalms had to deal with that. Now, in that Psalm, there are a lot of metaphors. Remember, Psalm means song. So it is a song. It would be like the lyrics to what we've, we've read or sing on Sunday morning. So you've got 150 songs in the Old Testament. And in those songs, are they always literal or are there metaphors that are taken to be used as examples that we can begin to comprehend? It's much like when I talk about the Trinity and the three Trinity trees that I have. It makes sense. 
it just makes sense. You can see the three trees and then up above, like you don't see where one begins or ends, but it's a metaphor, an example for what that is. So the devil takes Psalm 91 out of context. And, and so this is interesting because he takes it from a general psalm about how amazing God is and all that he does for his people, and he makes it messianic, which I find fascinating because he says, if you are the Son of God. Constantly doubt, always filled with doubt, if, if, to lead you to wonder, to make you to think, to make you do the sin. I find it really fascinating that even in the end, because it's kind of compound, she's like, well, the serpent told me. It's like, no, you did it, you knucklehead. <laughs> like, you knew right from wrong, and then you did it. So you can blame him, but it's you who is your decision and your choice. And ultimately, that's where this all stems from, within us as well. So Psalm 91, he takes it out of context, making it into a messianic psalm, but he also leaves out a very important verse. He also leaves out in this, to guard you in all your ways. Whereas the devil makes this very specifically, like, well, Psalm 91 says that his angels will guard you and they'll make sure that you don't hit your feet. So if you're the son of God, Reuben. Now, this very well easily could have happened. But think about the repercussions too. And this is really important too, because everyone's looking for these miracles. Everyone's looking for the Betty Hinn to tap you on the head and make you fall on the floor and you're magically healed with miracles. But man, I see a whole nation of people that witnessed miracles that still didn't trust their Lord in, in all of this. And I still see that today. And so let's say Jesus did jump off and go over the temple. What would that do to the people? They're gonna see a miracle. And they're gonna be like, whoa, that's super cool. You must be someone really important, but this is key. Jesus is about an inside-out transformation. It's not about the miracles. It's about thoughts and intentions of the mind or the heart, which is everything that we are, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And so because it is about those things and because it is an inside-out transformation, those miracles, while certainly helpful later on, and it helped people, this is all about relaying these types of issues and these types of problems to the people. Could Jesus have just gone and, you know, done his wonders and fixed the world and everything else? Probably. But there's this part of God, this story of him, the redemption story. And he's not a monster making you do things you don't want to do. So he gives you opportunity, he tries to reason with you. Reason with you. Just like how Isaiah for comfort, comfort for my people. Reason with you. Where were you when the storehouses of snow were created? Where were you when the shores were measured? Where were you when? And so all of those things have to be taken ultimately by faith. And so, Here's the rub, man. This is a terrible rub. I feel awful for Israel, but I also feel awful for us at the same time. Deuteronomy 6.16 is where Jesus gets his retort. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Oh, here we go. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 through 7. If you 
Louise Turner. Mm. Oh, so all of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and capped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Did you know it's all Moses' fault? And said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Oh, Israel. Oh, human beings. Oh, human nature. Now, especially at this moment in the story of Israel, this is, this is mind-blowing, but this, at the same time, it's very much us. This happens to me too, just like it happens to you, just the same. So, yeah, God came to Moses in a burning bush, and Moses started saving the people. Yeah, there were ten plagues, the very last of which was the killing of all the first newborn sons. And then there was the traveling out in the desert, the smoke, and the big pillar that was God. And then there's the parting of the Red Sea and watching Egypt get crushed because God saves his people, but, you know, didn't let Egypt cross over into life as well. And then there's the experience in the wilderness and manna coming down from heaven, so you can be sure to eat every day. And then we get to this point, why did you bring us here to die from thirst? Do you see their foolishness? And maybe the Lord will convict you of your foolishness too. God is for you. Don't think he's not. Maybe because he's not doing everything you spoiled little self wants. I get it, but at the same time, God is with us. And so, you see there at the end, Meribah means quarreling, and, and Massa means uh, uh, quarreling testing to test. And, and so that's why they were named that, because that's the place where they quarreled and tested. And so, man, you see that. And in, in, in us too. Is the Lord with us? I can't tell you how many people that have a bad moment. God's left me. He's forsaken me. I don't know if he's ever loved me. Ugh. Can you stop being Israel? That's like, can you just stop sinning? Can you just please stop sinning? That's impossible. It doesn't work like that. And it doesn't work like that for us. But 
it's important to see this for what this is. <laughs> and, and man, is the Lord among us or not? Yes, the Lord's among us. Just answer that yes. Make a big billboard, maybe, you know, tattoo it on your forehead or something. Whatever it is to remind you that the Lord is with you 24-7. He's not leaving you or forsaking you. He says at the end, uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, that, uh, behold, I, I've taken over the world, take heart. You know, you will face trial and tribulation, but I've taken over. Then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's the very same thing in, in another roundabout way in that I will never leave you or forsake you. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so God is with us all times and as you saw from the first point jesus led by the spirit you as well have the holy spirit the promise and the seal and the guarantee of our salvation he's with you all the time all the time don't lose sight of that and so nationally jesus did what israel couldn't in regards to trusting the Lord and knowing that God's with him. And even in this hard moment after fasting for 40 days, which none of us could do, that Jesus still trusts and acknowledges the Father in his actions. When we've dealt with heavy losses or heavy challenges, do we still continue to trust that God is with us? My answer, hopefully, is filled with a little doubt. As I said it, hopefully, in human context, just be aware that you will remember this. And that these types of moments will carry with you that, yeah, God's for me. Look at all these promises. There's no way He's not for me in all of this. And then the very last one Jesus succeeds where you and I fail. I mean, Jesus succeeds, you know, the Adam and Eve thing is where you and I fail, all the Israel things where you and I fail. And now we just take it up one more level. So then maybe you can understand all the people around you and why they're so bent on themselves. Because they worship themselves. And they worship many other things other than what they were created to do here. They've made their meaning of life about something other than God. So temptation number three is to worship many people, places, and things other than God. This is the pride of life. This is the root of world. It feels like all other sins come. Because if I desire wealth, and I really, 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 really want to be wealthy, I don't care who I hurt in the process, not even myself. I worship wealth. And I don't care what it takes to get there. I could say this about my job, I could say this about my family, I could say this about my children, I could say this about my relationships, I could say this about my material possessions, I could say this about film the blank. And you see people worshiping all types of things in this world. My greatest sadness in today's society 
are those people who worship politics. I don't know how you worship politics and not want to kill yourself. And I say that sincerely. It is a mess. It is a show about people behaving poorly on a daily basis. It is like watching dance moms. It is like watching any of those bad, terrible reality TV shows, which honestly I don't find have much to do with reality at all, other than people worshiping their daughters dancing or like again, I don't want to harp and, and rail on any one thing because I can quite literally rail on everything when it comes to worship. And this goes back to the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But people are like, well, I don't have this bronze statue that I'm worshiping, therefore I'm not worshiping other gods. But the truth of the matter is, is worshiping is serving. It's, it's what you're honoring in another. And so while we honor our Lord Jesus for his, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his grace, his mercy, the list goes on and on. We worship before all these things. We give praise and thanksgiving to Him. How many times do we give praise and thanksgiving to lots of everything else? Or as I put it, people, places, and things. And so, the devil took him to the high mountain and said, I'll give you all of this if you worship me. But here's the thing. Jesus already had all that. Why did he need to go and worship the devil? The devil's kind of living in his own delusions, if you will. And that's another way to tell, because almost everyone out there living in their own delusion. I'm not that bad, but you're bad enough that you need a savior. So the people that say, I'm not that bad, miss it. They're living in a delusion and a denial. Just like the devil saying to God himself, Hey, I'll give you the world and everything in it if you just worship me. It's nonsensical. And yet, he's living in that delusional denial with Jesus being the Son of God. And then Jesus says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6, while it certainly goes much more, it talks about the greatest commandments. And this is right after the Ten Commandments as well, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And you're like, wait a minute, Eric. The Ten Commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. And I'm like, you're right, but they're also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Hey, you've learned something. Maybe, maybe not. No, hopefully the Lord is working within you and convicting you of being like, these sins, yeah, I get wrapped up in these nonsensical things all the time. But those temptations involve that twisting of reality. And what's the antidote? Ah, right here. Right here. The truth of God's word. And that's exactly what Jesus did all of these times to throw it back in the devil's face. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 15 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and you shall talk of them when you walk by the way, and you shall talk of them when you lie down, and you shall talk of them when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, tattoo if you will, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and blinders. You know, those horse things that they wear, absolutely. It's a big deal. Okay? You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Everywhere. Okay? Love the Lord your God. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities, that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods and gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst and is a zealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Right? Deuteronomy is pretty awesome. In fact, the Old Testament is pretty awesome. It's like, it's like you took off the, the smooth part. And that is the heart of the matter, is that your heart is not for God. So how does he bring it back? How does he bring it back? Well, as we know a lot of the story, Jesus He's going, He's going to save, to save his people, people from their, their sins. sins. These are the three biggest sins and the lies that we believe on a daily basis. No day we are unsusceptible to these things. Remember, it's the temptation within each of us. So if the, the devil hears, sees that you might have a temptation, He's going to try to attack you and try to derail this relationship that you have with the Lord. Because, first and foremost, that's the meaning of life. That's why you're here. The, the, the catechisms that human beings try to make to simplify theology, to simplify everything, the Westminster Catechism says this, the entire duty of man, the whole purpose of man, our job, our responsibility, to glorify God and enjoy Him. That's it. That's it. Maybe some of you are feeling those weights coming off your shoulders. Maybe some of you are like, wait a minute. So it's not about my family. It's not about the work I do. It's not about the kids that I raise. It's not about blah, blah, blah. No. No, it is not. Because you are not promised tomorrow. You also are not promised to be married. You are not promised children. You are not promised a $200,000 a year job. You are not promised, but what you are promised is that Jesus walks with you. 
What you are promised is that you're loved. What you are promised is that you're saved. What you are promised can be found in God's Word, which is the antidote to all the lies from the devil and the lies from the ways of the world. Praise the Lord Jesus that he came. Praise God the Father that he was pleased to send the Son to reveal him to us. Praise God that because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us now, because of what Jesus has done, because of what the Father has done, that we can walk in newness of life, that we can indeed understand God's ways, that we don't necessarily have to act independently from God's will. In fact, the blessings are abundant in God's will. But seeing as how we know better than the Creator, this is why we act independently from God's will. Now, seeing as how we're spoiled children too, in the second point, it makes complete and total sense that we're constantly wondering, does God care about me? Poor me, poor me, 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 not all about me. It's what the Bible says. Not about me. The world says it's all about you. You better live your best life now. You better get yours while you can. Those other people take it. You better fight for it. Nope. It's not. Are you going to listen to the world? Are you going to listen to God? Who's it about? sufferings of this present reality pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us in our Lord Jesus when we are with him. By, by far. By far. The Apostle Paul says that in Romans chapter 8, one of the most prolific chapters in all of Scripture. And then lastly, of course, the desire to worship many things. I know you've worshipped many things. I know you've worshipped people. I know you've worshipped places. I know you've worshipped things. And I also know that each one of those things comes up and down. It takes one to know one. Now that I've worshipped Jesus, I've never been let down. Nor should you ever feel let down. In the slightest. And I agree we all want our own way. But... I really appreciate God's way because if Eric really did have his own way all the time because Eric thinks he knows best, like we probably wouldn't be in this building right now, we probably wouldn't necessarily be here, we probably wouldn't necessarily be a lot of things. I might not even necessarily have a family at this point, but praise be to God that in all of this, after I've started worshiping him, there is that peace that surpasses all understanding and God in my heart and my mind. Because all those things that I chased, all that life that I thought was the meaning of life, let me down and led me to death and to dead end roads. So, praise be to God that now I worship Him. 
and because I worship him, I know who I am. I know why I'm here. I know what's wrong with the world. I know what can be done to fix it. And I know that I have hope, love, joy, peace, and a whole slew of gospel-centered words like redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all because of salvation. Praise be to God. Right? Worship the Lord Jesus in all things. There is victory in him. If you enjoy defeat, keep looking at earthly, worldly things. Because this world is passing away. It's in scripture. You can bank on it. You can bet on it. I don't really advise betting because you know, that can be kind of simple, kind of fast. But you can totally bet on it if you want to. Praise be to God that his word is true and promises and that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is the same yesterday and today. Dear Heavenly Father, certainly as always, I thank you for all blessings in your lives. And so certainly we've talked about so many different blessings. And I just thank you for being convicted this week. And I thank you for text, just, uh, again, the joy and the passion that we all want to work together in these moments and just seeing uh, the Holy Spirit work with each and every one of us. So, Lord Jesus, again, we give you all the praise and all the thanksgiving and just thank you again for your glory in all of this, that you succeed where Adam and Eve failed. You are the true and better Adam. Lord Jesus, thank you for, you know, completing what Israel couldn't you know, not one iota, not one dot of the law will pass until all is accomplished. And you said that even unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the most religious people in the world, that the kingdom of heaven will not be ours. So Lord Jesus, thank you for being the way, the truth, and the life for each and every one of us, that we may have opportunity to, opportunity to be reconciled back to the Father, and that we may be living with you in kingdom life, in peace and joy and harmony for all eternity. Lord Jesus, thank you for so many blessings that I've just mentioned, as well as so many more that time I need to mention. We love you, and it's in your name we pray.